Back in 1986, in the former Soviet Union, there was a nuclear disaster that was so horrendous that it actually destroyed um, vast swathes of countryside in, in, in Ukraine. And it was known as the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. There were four nuclear reactors in this uh, facility and one of them exploded. Now, they weren't able to really get a grasp of what had happened because they had this wrong presupposition. They thought, scientifically, it was impossible for an RBMK Soviet-made reactor to explode. And yet, what we found is that that's exactly what happened. This reactor exploded and it took the technicians many days to come to grips with the fact that their reactor had just exploded. Many officials thought that what had actually occurred was there was a leak in the pump and hydrogen uh, ended up for, uh, kind of forming around the reactor and you know, hydrogen, when mixed with oxygen, creates an explosion. Uh, but that's not actually what happened. The reactor melted down and got so hot that it exploded and spewed radiation across the countryside. Uh, they had a 30-kilometer exclusion zone around uh, Chernobyl. Uh, and that circle, if you want to put it over the Hunter, goes from Newcastle to Singleton. And that exclusion zone is now uninhabitable for 20,000 years due to radiation. Human beings will never be able to live, well some do, but you're not allowed to live in this place for at least 20,000 years as the radiation begins to decay over time. And so uh, during this disaster we had about 54 people die and over in just, a, in just a few weeks due to radiation poisoning, one of the worst ways to go, uh, radiation poisoning. and. Uh, later, over 4,000 people would die based on the complications. It took over 200,000 people to clean up the mess, and uh, they, they, they still poses a big problem today, this, this whole disaster. And it could have been dealt with so much, with so much more speed, uh, which with, uh, with far less fallout, had this presupposition of been there that RBMK reactors don't explode, because they did. And it took them a long time to come to terms with that. And so presupposition, wrong presuppositions, can mean that you don't respond accurately to stimuli that comes, uh, comes at you. you. You end up not being able to see the reality of the situation. And so Paul knows, Paul knows in, in, in our passage today that wrong suppositions can actually be devastating spiritually. Wrong suppositions, presuppositions can mean that you don't actually see the truth. Of the situation. You don't actually see reality clearly and because we don't see things clearly, because we're deceived and we're self-deceived, then it means that we're in a lot of trouble when it comes to God. When it comes to who God is and how we should relate to God, we start with wrong presuppositions. And so uh, Paul's going Paul's gonna to start in uh, verse 17. He's going to say this, he says, This I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now he starts by saying that he says this, he testifies in the Lord. And that's his way of saying, this is God's will. I am telling you right now, I'm bearing witness to you that this is God's will. Pay attention. Pay clear attention. This isn't something you can gloss over. This isn't a passage that you want to read and, and not take to heart. Paul's like, pay attention for this is the will of God. And what is it? That you no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That you no longer walk 
as the Gentiles do. Now, walking, uh, whenever you find the word walk in, in the Bible, it's talking about a way of life. Uh, you, you want to picture life as a journey. You're going along on a journey and you're walking through that journey. And so the way that you conduct yourself through the journey is what's uh, being talked about here. Uh, the reformers, the Puritans, they used to call this uh, the pilgrimage. Uh, you know, your pilgrimage through life as, you, as you're on, on your life trying to get to God. Um, and so Paul is saying, don't walk as the Gentiles. Do not walk as the Gentiles. And so we know that Paul's very pro-Gentile. He, he loves the Gentiles. He's been going to the Gentiles and sharing the gospel with them. He wants them to know Jesus. He wants them to know the truth about Jesus. Uh, but he is not fond of the way they live. In fact, he is very much against the way they live. And so you can see he says, um, he says that uh, the way of life for Gentiles is marked by futility. Now that word literally means emptiness. The emptiness of their minds. They have futile minds. Why? Why, why does he think the Gentiles have futile minds? Well, uh, you know, as I said right at the start of this sermon series, Ephesians is like many Romans and you don't get that any better than here. Uh, the book of Romans is just uh, the book of Ephesians and the book of Romans pick up on all the same themes and build on the same uh, theology. And so you can even, you can hear the same line of reasoning in, in Romans 1, 21 and 23. Paul says this, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So the Gentiles, they thought of themselves as wise. All the great Greek philosophical thinkers, all the, all the Latin thinkers and the orators, and they, they thought they were wise. They thought they were virtuous. They, they thought that they could see reality clearly. Now we know, looking back, the pagan Romans, uh, the pagan Greeks, they did not actually see reality clearly. And so they had uh, this kind of... They had all these complex philosophical systems, but the reason they didn't work is because they started with wrong presuppositions. They started with a pantheon of gods and then tried to make reality make sense based off that foundation. And because they started with that foundation, everything else was wrong. Everything else was empty. Because they started at a wrong place, there was no way that anything that they were going to get in between there and there was actually going to work. And the, what they got wrong was they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for other things. They exchanged God for uh, their own gods. They exchanged gods for their, themselves, for creeping things, for things that were made. Rather than the creator himself, they worshipped creation. Paul says, uh, from verse 18, he says that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So the problem is, if you, if you don't know God, if you're alienated from the life of God, Paul says here, you're darkened in your understanding. You're darkened in your understanding. You don't know God. 
You might understand many things, you might know a lot of truths, but you can't interpret them. You may see what's happening, but you can't interpret them. You don't know why they're happening. You don't know whether there is any meaning or purpose. You don't know if there's any end goal. You don't know whether there is any hope with any sort of certainty. It's hard to make sense of reality, of meaning, of, of morality without the presupposition of God. They're darkened in their understanding. And, and, and Paul says they're alienated from the life of God. Well, why? Why are they alienated? What Ignorance is the first thing. They're ignorant. They've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something else. They've worshipped all these things. They've been raised in this. And so they're ignorant of the truth. They don't actually know. And so it's easy. You know, ignorance means without knowledge, not knowing these things. And it's easy to look at this and think, you know, feel sorry for them. They don't know the truth. But Paul doesn't feel sorry for them. Because he says that their ignorance that is in them is due to their hardness of heart. They don't want to know. So it's not that they're ignorant and that all we need to go do is go and tell them. It's, it's not that they, they, uh, they want to know, but they just don't have the tools with which to find out. They are hard of hearts. They don't actually want to find out. They don't actually want to know the truth. I remember when I first became a Christian, I had this silly notion that everyone, you know, all I had to do was just prove to them that Jesus was real, prove to them that God was legit and that they would want to follow Jesus. And what I found was that that wasn't true at all. People weren't after truth. People weren't after truth at all. They were very hard of hearts. They wanted to define their own reality. They wanted to define their own path. And you see it all around us. And Paul is accurately describing human beings right there. You think they want truth. And then you find out that they don't actually want truth. They want their lies. They love their lies. They love living in lies. And so... Their heart of hearts. There is no waking them up. They don't want to be. How do you do that to someone? How do you, how do you educate their ignorance if they do not want to change? Romans 3.11 says this. No one understands. No one seeks for God. It's really important to get this. God is not hiding from us. God has made it plain to everyone that he exists and that he is real through his creation. He's not hiding from you. If you genuinely want to search him out, he will reveal himself to you. The one who looks to God, he will save. The problem is not with God. God is not hiding. The problem with us is with us because we're not looking. We aren't looking for God. Paul says that no one looks for God. We look for something we want. Now, I don't, I don't mean to pick on hyper-spiritual people, um, but hyper-spiritual people sometimes when uh, they're going out on their quest to find who God is, uh, the problem is their quest to find who God is, is more of their quest to find what they want God to be. And so they go all these things trying to, trying to get wisdom, trying to get knowledge, to try to see if it makes them feel good. And if it makes them feel good, then they think this must be where God is. But that is not how you search for God. God reveals himself to you. God comes to you. You can't find... Uh, he, he's, he's not hiding. You can go and find him. But the problem is, 
Uh, he's there. We don't want him. We want something else. We want a different God. We want a God that looks like us, that sounds like us, that speaks like us, that, that has the same, uh, the same morality as us. Isn't it funny that people that when they search for God, their God looks very much like them, doesn't he? The God that they end up finding looks almost exactly like them. And, 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 it's, and it's sad because some Christian circles are like that. They, they, they think they found Jesus. They think they found God. But yet God looks a lot like them, doesn't he? God seems to have the same opinions they do. And especially when it contradicts Scripture, they say, oh, well, you know, things were different. Culture was different back then. You know, God is a lot more like this. God is a lot more like us. God is kind of a bit 21st century Western-minded with all of the Western-minded sensibilities. Well, I'm sorry to break it to you, but that is not the truth. That is ignorance. And the reason you don't want to believe and follow the true God is because of hardness of heart. And you may think you're soft to God, but if you import all your values onto God, well, that is a hard heart. That comes from a hard heart. No one searches for God. And so because human beings don't want to find God, Paul says they have become callous. They have become callous. Now, calluses are great if you're out working in the field because you need tough hands. But the one thing you want to be soft to is you want to be soft to God. You want to have God come in and show you the reality. You don't want to become callous to God. You don't want calloused hands when it comes to God. And that's exactly what the Gentiles have done. They've become callous. And it's pretty simple. When you fall into sin, uh, the more and more you do it, the easier it becomes. So that sense of uh, uh, doing wrong, the more and more you push it, you repress it, you push it down and you get it all the way down here until you can't hear it anymore, well, all of a sudden you've, you've become callous to the things of God and the Spirit no longer contends with you and you find yourself in this place of being able to sin and not caring. And that's a dangerous place to be in. Being able to sin and you just don't care. And, and, and I don't know about you, but the sins I struggle with the most are, are not ones that just come out of left field, out of the blue, and it's not characteristic of me. The ones I struggle with the most, well, they're the ones I've done thousands of times before, aren't they? Because I'm callous to them. I've, I've gone down that path so many times that in an instant, not with, without even feeling guilty, you can go down uh, the path of anger, pride, lust, envy. You just go straight down that path and you don't even feel bad about it. You don't even feel bad because you're callous. You've lost the capability, the capacity to do that. That's a dangerous place. The callous heart is impenetrable. It's impenetrable. Romans one twenty four says this. He says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves. Same language. Here, the Gentiles give themselves over to sensuality. In, in Romans one twenty four. It's the opposite. God gives them over. So what is it? Well, they're not contradictory. It's, it's both are true. It's the same as when Pharaoh, you remember Pharaoh uh, hardens his own heart against God, and then God will come in a bit later and then harden Pharaoh's heart. And, and it's a similar thing going on here. If you follow that path and you go down that path and you feel the Spirit uh, pulling you back and you're giving yourselves over to it, don't be surprised when you find yourself being given over by God, 
Don't be surprised if you end up having God give up on you. If you follow that path and persist in your rebellion and you don't want to come back to God, don't be surprised when He lets you do it. When He gives you over to dishonoring your own body, to practicing all sorts of impurity and racking up for yourself judgment upon judgment. Don't be surprised. If you really want it, stop thinking that God's just going to keep holding you back. It's a terrible thing when He just lets you go. See, Gentiles give themselves over, and God gives them over. God sovereignly gives people over to their sins, but remember, it's sins that they want to give themselves over up to. There's no contradiction. They both want this. They both have, they're both, they're, it's achieving the same thing. And so, uh, Paul says here, notice this, he says that they're greedy, they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You're never going to be satisfied. They're greedy. And that means no matter, no matter how much they get, they always want more. It's that sense of greed. No matter how much money that person gets, they always want more. There's no, there's no quota. It's not like you get to a million dollars and you think, I've made it. I'm satisfied. You get to there and you're thinking, I need to get to the next tier. I need to get to this next level. I need more. I need more. That's the attitude that Paul's talking about here. It's when you've been given over by God, you will never be satisfied. When you give yourself over, you will never be satisfied. No matter how much pleasure, satisfaction you get, you will never fill that hole you're trying to fill. It is bottomless. Throw whatever you want in there, it will keep falling. There is no bottom to that hole. You will never fill it up. You'll never get to the point where you will be satisfied. And whether it's sex, drugs, alcohol, power, money, prestige, fame virtue, even your family, no matter what it is, if you try to fill up that hole in your heart, if you're greedy to try to fill up that hole that you find, and you try to find happiness and satisfaction, and it's always fleeting, this is what, this is what Paul is saying about you. You're greedy to practice all sorts of impurity, uncleanness, things that make you unclean, things that stain us. We're always greedy for more. G.K. Chesterton says this, he says, Meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. So what, what happens when you, when you tell people who are lost in sin about God? What happens when you tell people that this has happened to and they've been given over? and they're greedy to practice all sorts of sins, what happens when you tell them about God? Hardness of heart. They're hard. They're so hard in their hearts that they will not hear the truth. They will not hear the truth. They've got callous hearts, seared consciences. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way that you learned Christ. So we have entered a new world now. The Gentiles live like this way. This is the way that they lived out in the world. We are not like them. If you have learned from Jesus Christ, you are not like them. You have entered a new world. You're a completely different creation. See, he could have said, this is not the way that you have learned to be a Christian. He said, this is not the way, he could have said, this is not the way that you have learned to even just live. 
But he says, this is not the way that you have learned Christ. And that is important. Because when you learn Christ, you learn the man himself. When you know the truth about Jesus, you learn about him, not about other things. So when we live and conduct our lives and walk, not as we did in our former lives, but in this new life that has been won for us by Jesus, we walk that life by his example, by his ministry by who He is, by His teachings. And it is by Him. It is by a person. And that is so important. It is by a person. See, our presuppositions matter. What you believe about Jesus matters. A church shows what kind of Messiah they believe in by the way that they live. The church shows who they think Jesus is by the way that they live. Remember, this is not the way that we have learned Christ. The way the world lives is not the way that we have learned Christ. And so he follows up with this. In verse uh, 21, he says, Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the way we are supposed to live now. This is the new way, the new creation, the the born-again Christian life. This is how we must live, not as the Gentiles, not as they do. We don't take... We we don't take our morality from the culture. We don't take our ideas of what's wrong or what's right from the culture. We take it from Jesus himself. We take it from Jesus. See, continuing to live like the Gentiles proves that you don't know Jesus. Continuing to live like the Gentiles proves that you have never been taught about Jesus. Continuing to live like the Gentiles shows that you are illiterate when it comes to Jesus. And it is a travesty when you see some Christians that know next to nothing about Jesus. Next to nothing. Some non-Christians will probably know more about Jesus' teachings than some Christians. And, and it's a travesty that they've never been in the Word. They've never sat at the foot of Jesus and just learnt. See, if we have not been at the foot of Jesus learning and, and, and receiving his examples, well, of course, of course you need to question whether or not you truly know Jesus. Of course you need to question that. John 8, 32 says this. He says, you will know the truth. This is Jesus speaking. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. When you know the truth about Jesus, when you know who Jesus is and you are walking in truth, Jesus says it will set you free. You will have a changed life. No longer do you have to be like the rest of the world. No longer do you have to be like the rest of Australia or the rest of your community or the rest of your society. Now you've learned something different. So ask yourself a question. Are you different? Or if someone just looked into your life would they find evidence that you're a Christian? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, 
the new has come. In Christ, you are a new creation. You are something new now. Do you believe that? Paul says this. He says, uh, put off your old self. Now, I'm going to disagree a little bit here with the uh, English Standard Version. Uh, they've got a footnote on it that says that it's either old self or old man. And I think it means, in, in the Greek, it, it literally means old man. Put off your old man. Now, he's not saying, you know, disown your dad, not disown your old man. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, take off the old man. So what's going here? Why, why, why are we seeing more gendered language like this? Is he just saying, take off your old self and he's, he's decided to make it slightly gendered? Well, actually, no. Uh, Romans 5, great chapter to read. We're not, we don't have time to go through all of Romans 5, but, but Paul talks about in Romans in Romans, the, the old man and the new man. The old man in Romans 5 is Adam. The new man is Jesus. And so Adam, uh, the, being the first human being, was the federal head. He was the representative of humanity. When he fell into sin, he plunged the entire human race into sin along with him. When he went headfirst into rebellion, he brought the whole human race with him into rebellion. And so we have Adam's sin nature. We've taken on all of his wrong presuppositions. We've taken on all his lies, all his sin, all his rebellion, and this is what we're walking in. But don't think that we're just victims. We want this. We want the rebellion. You may think that if you were in the garden, you would have chose different to Adam, but newsflash, you wouldn't have. You're the child of Adam. You've inherited his nature. We are lost in sin, in original sin, because of Adam. Adam is our federal, federal head. And you've got to remember, Adam was disobedient. His sin was disobedience, rebellion. He rebelled against God. He revolted, he rioted, he challenged the authority of God and wanted to be his own God. And how true is that for Christians? Oh, not Christians, for, for this world. How true is that for this world? See, so we have Adam's sin nature by choice. And God told Adam in Genesis 2.17, he says, In the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. We are alienated from the life of God. Paul says in Ephesians 4.18, right, in the passage, we are dead to God, just as Adam was dead the moment he ate the fruit. The day that he eats of it, he shall surely die. He didn't die straight away, did he? Well, he did. He died spiritually. He died in the way that matters. He was disconnected from the life of God. He exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something else. What did he exchange it for? Himself. Because the serpent's lies were that you will become like God. And that is the most tantalizing lie throughout all of human histories. We want to be our own God. We want to call the shots. And so Paul, he says here, take off the old man. Take off Adam. 
Get rid of Adam. Get rid of his rebellion. Get rid of his sin. Get rid of all of these things. Now, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Oh yeah, I'll just take off Adam. It doesn't work like that, does it? Well, let's have a look. What happens here? Uh, Paul's saying, don't follow in his footsteps. Take him off. Just as you take off clothing, take Adam off. Why? Because those clothes are corrupt. It's your former manner of life. Don't walk in that old man. Take him off. Why? Because it was corrupt and he led you into deceitful desires. Now, that is a good phrase, deceitful desires, a very specific phrase. Because your desires, our innate desires, the desires we inherit from Adam, are deceitful because they promise something that they can never deliver. Your strong urges that think, well, if I have these things, I'll be satisfied. And yet you indulge in those things. And what happens? You're not satisfied. And then the body lies to you again. You just need more of it. You just need more of it. And the more you get, the more you destroy your life in getting it. The more you, you kind of believe these lies, you trust in these lies, and it's hard to disentangle yourself from it. See, our desires tempt us and promise us things that they can't deliver. And so Paul says, take off these clothes, put on something different. That's the key. It's not just taking these things off. You think you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get out there, take off that sin nature. Boy, you're going to fail. But if you do what Paul says here and put on something new, oh, it's going to be very, very different. It's going to go very, very differently for you. Let's... Uh, let's read verse 23. Uh, this happens, Paul says, uh, by the renewal being renewed in the spirit of your minds. See, we're in trouble. You can't just take the old man off. It, it, it sounds like we can take it off, but we can't. We need renewal in our spirit of our minds. Those two things are essential. We need to understand that phrase, spirit of your mind. The spirit of your mind means a continual, continual renewal that starts in your salvation and continues throughout your walk with God, throughout your sanctification by the Holy Spirit. It starts spiritually and then it affects your whole body. That's why picking yourself up by your bootstraps never works. Because you're starting with your body. You're starting with your, what's physical about you. You have to start spiritually. You have to start spiritually. Paul says, being renewed where? Your spirit of your mind. It starts spiritually and then it affects everything else. So we start with the spirit. We start with our spirit being affected by the Holy Spirit. Because if you do it in your own flesh, I don't know, I've tried. I'll tell you what, it never worked for me. And I'm sure if you're honest, the times that you just tried to beat this sin with your sheer effort of willpower, did you find that you were able to crush it? Well, probably not. You needed something else to happen, right? See, if this change has to happen spiritually before it happens physically, it needs to be a renewal. And if you're struggling with sin, it's not to do better. It's how can I be renewed? That's the question you need to be asking. Not how can I do better with this sin? That's a good question to ask. The answer to that question is, how can I be renewed? How can I be renewed? How do we do it? Verse 24, by putting on the new self. Same word in Greek, the new man. So this is my translation of this passage. Slightly different from ESV, you'll see it. Um, uh, verse 24, I, 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 put it, I put it like this. He said, and to put on the new man 
created after the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, we need the right presupposition, Jesus. You start with Jesus. You put on the new man. Who is the new man? Jesus. You can read all about this in Romans 5. Jesus is the new man, the new, uh, the, the obedient man. And so by one man's obedience, all men are made righteous. Just as one man's disobedience, all are made to sin. In Adam, the one man's sin created sin for all of us, and we willingly walk in it. But with the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, through him, many are made righteous. So we've got to put on the righteousness of Jesus, take off the rebellion of Adam. The key thing is the rebellion of Adam. It's not giving ourselves up over to God. It's holding back, being our own king. That's the thing you need to take off. The new man defeated sin and death. The old man brought sin and death into the world. In Adam, all die. But in Jesus, all live. In Adam, all people lived in blindness and unrighteousness and rebellion. But in Jesus, all live in righteous, true righteousness and holiness because he is one for us. Now, don't hear me as saying this. Don't hear me as saying that you can get to a point where you don't sin. Don't hear me as saying that... Um, I'm not trying to throw works righteousness on you. We're not saved by taking off Adam. We're not saved by taking off Adam. We're saved by putting on Christ. And yes, disentangling yourself from Adam might be hard, but it's a process that needs to happen. See, Adam's sin tarnished the image of God. It, you know, when... When, when Adam sinned, he, he was made in the image of God. We, we, find, we know from Genesis, he's made in the image of God. And when he sins, it's tarnished. He was a perfect creature before, but now he's tarnished. And he still carries the image of God. Every human being carries the image of God. That's actually why we're all valuable. That's why you can't kill anyone because they're made in the image of God. It's an affront to God, to murder. We're all made in the image of God, but it's tarnished. It's not the same. It's broken. It's messed up. Jesus restores the image to us. See, this new man is created after the likeness. You could translate it the image of God. Where have we heard that before? Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We've heard this before. We are made after the likeness of God. It's not to say that we are gods. That is false. We're not gods. We are like God. We have some aspect of God's character and nature within us. That's why we have morality. That's why we have all these different faculties that human beings have that the rest of animal, the animal kingdom doesn't. See, we are different as human beings because we were made in the image of God. And so God is restoring his own image in us through Jesus. See, victory over sin is not by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not by saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. But rather by saying, I'm going to do this. And what do you need to do? You need to put on Jesus. You need to put on the new man. You need to put on this new man that restores the image of God in you and sanctifies you through the Holy Spirit. If you want to be free from sin, it is not about going, I'm going to stop doing that, but rather by going, I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to put on more of Jesus. I'm going to spend more time at the foot of 
Jesus, being satisfied in him and not in the things of this world. That is the promise that we have in this passage. Not that you will defeat every sin, not that you will be sinless and perfect. No one will be. The promise is that you will walk in this. The promise is that you'll be able to walk in this and be growing in this and be getting better at it. It's a process. Taking off your the old man, taking off Adam, takes work. It takes work. It takes identifying it because where there are parts of us that are still in rebellion towards God. There are parts of us that we haven't submitted and surrendered to the sovereignty of God. And God wants all of us. So take off the old man. Don't live like the Gentiles. Put on the new man, Jesus. Learn from him. Move your life towards Jesus because you can, um, if you're like me, you can see areas of your life where you're still in rebellion to God. What does it look like to take that off and put on Jesus? Have the right presupposition and that is Jesus. You want to have Jesus as the right presupposition. If you start with Jesus, you'll get the rest right. But if you start with something else, if you live like the Gentiles do, if you do the things like the Gentiles do, you'll find yourself heading down the wrong path. Put on the new man. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are just so thankful for the way in which you have guided us and healed us and brought us into your son, Jesus, Lord. We pray that you would be restoring the image of God in us, restoring us to our true self. Lord, we pray that you would just be uh, breaking down our sin that is in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us in truth, lead us down to the right presupposition and give us the grace that we need to walk in truth and walk in the new man and to take off the old man, Adam, and put on Jesus. Lord, we need your spirit to do this work. We pray that you would help us. Help us, Lord, to conquer sin in a way that's actually will change our lives and move us. In Jesus' name, amen.